0: Oh, It's great to be here with you all. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It really is exciting um, to, first of all, benefit from the creative team that you have here at this church. I think I'm going to try to steal most of them and take them back to Phoenix, if you don't mind, um, because um, we did have a series in our youth um, meetings, but uh, I kind of wish we could have benefited from your creative team. What if the uh, decorations would have been great to kind of steal from you and take to them. So it's good to be here, also in balmy Dallas. Thank you for bringing in the nice weather, because um, where we're coming from in Phoenix, this is kind of like you know walking into the cool breezes of the Bahamas or something. So uh, thank you for serving me and Lori and Ellie. Uh, just feels very cool here, and we appreciate it very much. Don't really understand why all the complaining is going on. It's happening because in Phoenix, it's about 111 typically. Right now, so we're grateful to be here, Um, but also very excited about this topic. Uh, This is something that our youth in Phoenix, uh, we felt there was a great need for this, uh, because as you know, our culture is filled with perspective on love and romance. There really isn't any other topic that is so pervasive in our culture as thinking about romance, uh, there, there just isn't anything else, doesn't matter if you're watching a shampoo commercial or going to the movies, romance dominates the ideology and passions, particularly of youth, but really extending to every age group in this country and increasingly around the world. Well, this is a series about love and that we're going to be really sort of taxing your brains. Uh, we're going to have two sessions tonight, three tomorrow, several Q&A's, so you, you're just going to have to kind of pace yourself. Uh, settle in. Don't feel like you have to pay too close attention. If you miss half of one message, well, don't worry. There's four other ones coming. Uh, It's totally okay. But we're going to look at the topic of romantic love. Uh, It's about guys liking girls and girls liking guys. It's about dating and whether it's okay to hang out as guys and girls together. It's about how we should think about this season of time prior to marriage when guys and girls are single What does the Bible say about how they're supposed to relate together? The world has a lot to say. The world has a huge perspective on that season. And it preaches that perspective, as I said, with virtually every commercial, every advertisement, every movie, every television show. It proclaims that perspective. And in light of that, it's also true that we have a perspective about love. You have a perspective about guys and girls... Liking each other and how they should relate together. You already do. You walk into this room with a perspective on that. Because you're human and because you live in a culture that has proclaimed a perspective that you've had to interact with over the course of your life. And the most important question to ask is, is your perspective God's perspective? God has a perspective on love. This world worships romance and physical attraction and sexuality and has no interest in what God thinks. But what God thinks about love is what we should think about love. If we claim to be Christians living our lives on the authority of God's word, we have to start with this word to make a definition about love. What God thinks about love Is what you should think about love. It's what we should think about love. It should frame our perspective. We should find our perspective right here. And tonight I want to look at one verse, just one verse. Obviously, there's many we could have chosen, but Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. So if you'd open your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. The first thing I want to do tonight, just in this opening session, is put love in its place. If we want to understand sort of a definition of romance from the Bible, the first thing I think that the Bible would indicate is how important romance is, which is important given, as I said, our cultural exaltation of romance. The Bible actually doesn't think nearly as high of romance as our culture does. Our culture would elevate it to... That which is of first importance, the Bible gives it a slightly lesser importance. So so we need to put romance in its place, and I think this passage in Galatians uh, does just that. So let's begin reading in verse 27, and then I'll ask the Lord to help me, and then we'll start to apply this. Verse 27 of chapter 3 of Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's take a second and ask the Lord to help us. Father, it's so good to be together and to sing songs about you and to enjoy the worship of you with your people. And Lord, I just ask over these next few hours that you would give us endurance physically, that you would give us uh, just humor and fun together, Lord, that as we look at this topic, it would be exciting, it would be interesting, it would be invigorating, but most importantly, it would be transforming. But I pray that your perspective on love would become ours by the power of your Spirit. I pray that as we look into your Word, it would have a transforming effect on our hearts, that we would not just come here to think about a topic as interesting or as curious, Lord, but that we would come here to have our lives and our perspectives changed. As we always should when we look into your Word. I pray that be the effect of tonight, tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well... In this passage, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, Paul is talking to the churches in this region of Galatia, and one of the big problems they're having is their understanding of the Jewish law and how it applies to the Christian faith. And in their church, they had started to have these divisions, one amongst another, and they were relating to people in certain categories. So then you have Paul here who's trying to do away with some of these categories in Galatia, and he starts to list them here. He's basically saying, look... When you were baptized into Christ Jesus, when you became a Christian, when you placed all of your sins on Jesus and took his righteousness on you, something very important happened. The other sort of normal categories that you use to distinguish one person from another, they just became a lot less important. They just decreased. So it used to be that you had this huge category of distinction between Jews and Greeks, because the Jews followed God's law, and the Greeks didn't. And we used to have this huge distinction. But we don't have that distinction anymore. Not that there aren't Jewish people and Greek people. We're not acting as though those aren't real categories. And suddenly you didn't, weren't born in Jerusalem, you were born in Athens. No, we're not kind of denying what's real. But we're saying, look, when it comes to your fellow Christians, what should come first to your mind is that they are Christians. What should come first to your mind is that Jesus Christ died for their sins and that they are heirs with you of eternal life. So, when you walk up to this brother in Christ, what should come to your mind is here's a guy that used to be headed to hell and now he's headed to heaven. And man, anything else compared to that, it just isn't all that important. He likes the Redskins, I like the Cowboys. Not that important. He's into a certain kind of clothing, and I'm into another kind of clothing. Not that important. He's a slave, and I'm a master. Not that important. Compared to the fact that this person is a Christian. Now, so far we're tracking, right? So far we're not really into racism, typically. We're not really into, you know, slavery. I mean, most of the time we're kind of tracking with Paul. Well, clearly, I mean, we're just bringing these kind of archaic systems of category and bringing them into a new world where there aren't slaves and masters, not Jews and Greeks, just one big family. And then Paul introduces a third category. There is neither male nor female. Now, if you know your New Testament, that's really weird. Because Paul loves the fact that God made men as men and women as women. He loves that, right? All over Paul's writings, we have Paul kind of celebrating what God has done. Men, uniquely men. Women, uniquely women. And God made this incredible plan where men and women together, as they get married, are going to proclaim the gospel. And men are going to represent Christ. And women are going to represent the church. And they have unique roles in the church and in the family. We're used to that with the Apostle Paul. And nothing in Galatians undermines that. So we have to ask, what in the world does he mean? In Christ, there's neither male nor female. I think what Paul's saying is this. Look, compared to being one in Jesus, being male or female is less significant. It's not non-existent. Just because like suddenly you don't have to deny I was born in Jerusalem. I can't really say. I, can't really, I don't really know. Could have been Athens. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, compared to being in Christ, being male or female, it's insignificant. Now, here's what I think that has to say about romance. Because everything that the Bible says about romance is about God making men and women in a particular way to enjoy and like and be attracted and eventually to marry one another. All that the Bible says about romance is grounded in this idea of God making men men and women women. So you can't get anywhere in the Bible talking about romance without thinking about God making men and God making women, God making guys and girls and making them so they like each other and they do something about it. In a nutshell, that's what the Bible has to say about romance. God made men and women, they like each other, and then we've got to figure that whole thing out, right? Well, here Paul is saying compared to being in Christ, being a man and being a woman, and you just lump in there, everything romantic is insignificant. Here's what I think he's saying. The gospel is more important than romance. The gospel is more important than romance. And if you're like me and you're a good church kid and you grew up in the church, don't start yawning and going to sleep right now, okay? Every first message of every series I've ever heard, it's always about the gospel. What do they do? They tell these guys they're not going to get paid if they don't put the gospel in there somewhere. Please don't do that. Please pay attention for just at least another eight minutes and see if it makes sense. Here's what I'm saying. The gospel is more important than romance. Being in Christ means there's neither male nor female. So here's how I put that together. When you walk up to your brother or sister in Christ, or anyone for that matter, the first and most important category that should come to mind is Is this person a Christian? Not, Is this person an option? Now, kind of silly, but we do, don't we? When we're single, we walk up to a person, and they are immediately in one category or another. Option or not an option. And sometimes in the not an option category, there's a little asterisk that says, if they change these eight things, I might bump you over. <laughs> well, if we apply Galatians 3... Paul is saying that really shouldn't be the first thing you're thinking. Even though it so often is. It really shouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind. Option or not option Guy, do I like this guy? I don't know if I like, you know, do I, do I like her? I don't know if I like her. Not, that, that shouldn't be what first comes to mind. What first comes to mind is, this person's a Christian. They were saved. They're heading to hell. Now they're going to heaven. They're my brother or sister in Christ. Do I like them or not? I don't know, but they're a Christian. That's what Paul. That's how Paul would say it. Why are you thinking about whether you like them? They're a Christian. Let's think about that first. The gospel is more important than romance. It's more important than the fact whether they're a guy or a girl. Even the gospel is more important than romance. Paul's not saying that these distinctions are non-existent. It's not saying that. It's not saying. it Doesn't matter about romance, sexuality is just for a bunch of weirdos. No, he's not saying that at all. He's very excited about those topics. But we have to learn if we're going to think about romance the right way to put it in its place, and we have to recognize that that is completely countercultural. Putting romance in its place is countercultural. Saying that the gospel is more important than romance is countercultural. You will never ever hear a movie that basically says we're going to talk about something that's somewhat insignificant. He likes her. She likes him. They go on a long walk. They come to an understanding. And then they get married and live happily ever after. But just reminding you, this is really insignificant in comparison whether you're going to hell or not. You will never hear that kind of promotion about romance in the world. But that's the way God thinks about it. That's the way we should think about it. The gospel is more important than romance. Now, I want to introduce you to two characters tonight in this first session. Two characters that elevate romance above the gospel. And these are kind of extreme, but I think there's a little bit of each of them in all of us. And the first one is called the love addict. The love addict. This is a person who elevates romance above the gospel because they are dominated by the desire. For love, They're a love addict. As they look out into the world, they are so addicted to the topic and the feelings of romance that the gospel has drifted from their view, drifted from their priorities. It's become about love. And I'm not talking about necessarily even impurity. I'm just talking about the thrill of romance has become for them a dominating desire. They're a love addict. And I don't think that's too strong a term. They're a love addict. That's what they think about when they meet other people. That's what they think about when they see other people talking. That's what they imagine when they're thinking about building a friendship with a person. They're thinking about the possibilities of romance between them and another person or between the people they're thinking about. They're a love addict. They're dominated by the desire for love. Now, this... This person finds physical attraction a thrill, and emotional closeness, the highlight of their life. This person can't wait for the next conversation with that special someone. This person sees their life and their relationships as one long pursuit of romantic feelings of closeness and love. This person is addicted to the thrill of having a crush on someone... And dominated by the hope that someone will have a crush on them. This person goes into a meeting of other potentially eligible young singles. And their entire thinking as they choose their wardrobe for the evening. All the way to when they're driving home. And subsequent mental gyrations about every conversation they had that night are all dominated by the potential or lost potential of romantic connections with somebody. They don't just pick clothing. They imagine people. They just don't start conversations. They're thinking about the effect. This person is a love addict. They're dominated by the desire for love. Their first thought when they encounter some other single is, does this person present potential to feed my love addiction? They're not thinking, is this person a fellow member in Christ? Or love addict. They see the opposite gender as a big bag of emotional candy, just ready to be devoured. They have exalted love over the gospel. In other words, when they see another person, they definitely see, now that... ...is a female. And not only is it a female... ...I got another category... ...they are a possibility. They're a possibility for me. They're a possibility for me right now. They're somebody that I am interested in... ...and I desperately need them to be interested in me. They're a love addict. They can't go three sentences... ...into a new conversation... ...with a person of the opposite gender without being dominated by the fear that something they just said has ruined all hope of a future relationship. They're a love addict. And there's a little bit of love addict in all of us. Some of us, it's a very accurate description. This person reminds me of a young child uh, looking for the toy in the cereal box. You remember those, you know, when you were a kid... Your mom came home, she had a cereal box, and some of them had toys in them. There were boring ones that she got that didn't have those. She continued to get them. I don't know why, healthiness or something. And then there was another one that had a toy in it. And when you were a kid, you know, common courtesy of hygiene was completely out the window. You ripped the thing open, you defiled the whole box by reaching your hand in, you pulled the toy out, you had the toy, right? Didn't matter what you just did to everybody's cereal. The toy was now in your grasp. And if you had siblings, you got it as soon as she got home. You're out in the car, ripping the box out, tearing it open, plunging. I got the toy. Sorry for the rest of you people, right? That was you as a kid. Now, if you can imagine a young child maybe going to the grocery store, all right, goes to the grocery store, and he suddenly comes upon an aisle filled with cereal boxes. And they're the ones with the toy in them. And he can't understand why people put these kind of temptations in front of other people. And so he goes into the aisle, and he starts ripping through boxes. Got one toy, got holding of another toy, rips it open, reaches in, pulls it out, got it. another toy. And finally, he gets to the end of the aisle. He's just loaded down with toys, and he leaves behind an aisle filled with cereal strewn all over the place, boxes ripped open, but he's got all of these toys. Here's how I think that relates. The toy is like the emotional thrill of romantic tension. With that special someone from this week. The box and the cereal, that's the person. The love addict just wants the toy. He wants that emotional thrill, that sense of closeness. He wants to feel that rush of the romantic tension that happens between this guy and this girl. And he gets in there, he's got it, it's great, and now he's looking for another toy. While the person is strewn all over the floor. That's the love addict. He's exalted romance over the gospel to such a degree that the person and their standing in Christ is really insignificant. It's just a means to an end. Romance has become the goal and the desire. He's just ravenous. For that sense of closeness. That sense of thrill. They can't stop thinking about it. They can't stop imagining. can't stop wondering. She can't stop hoping that maybe he'll return that little glance or that little bit of affection. They're love addicts. They're addicted to love. They're destroying people. For the sake of that emotional closeness. They tend to see people of the opposite gender as just a potential emotional high. They're not seeing Jesus Christ in them. They're not seeing the hope of gospel fellowship. They're not seeing the opportunity of building together in the great truths of the faith. They're not seeing this as a person who has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and deserves the kind of honor and respect that is given to them by the name Christian. The love addict dismisses all of that. It goes right to the possibilities. Now, the toy is great. Okay? I'm not down on toys. I'm not down on the emotional thrill that comes from a romantic relationship. God made the toy. He made the person. He put the toy inside. God made the toy. He made the emotion. He made all of that romantic joy and excitement and enthusiasm. He made all of it. And he made it to be enjoyed. He made it to be anticipated. He made it to come as a package deal with the person. The toy is great. The toy is awesome. Romance is awesome. But the toy is not the person. The gospel is more important than romance. Now, you might be a love addict... If you would say that you primarily hang out with the people you're attracted to. You might be a love addict if you spend more time talking to the opposite gender. You might be a love addict if you flirt to receive attention. If you dress to attract attention. If you gossip about the crushes between two other people. If you get... Unrighteously nosy about a conversation between a single guy and girl. This is a person addicted to other people's love. And you know that happens. Dude, you see them talking over there? That is a toy conversation going on over there. Yeah, I know. They've been talking for like eight solid minutes. Can you believe that? I never would have picked that. Me neither. I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. These things happen. I thought you. I know I did too. It's a toy conversation. The love addict needs to be freed from their addiction to love. So that they can breathe the fresh air of gospel fellowship. They should not see every Christian they meet as a potential spouse but a person covered in the righteousness of Christ, sharing the heritage of a person chosen in God and headed towards heaven. The love addict needs to discipline their mind to think about God's truth rather than their own popularity. To talk about God's grace rather than flirt to gain favor. To grow in prayer for the spiritual well-being of others more than how they meditate on how funny they were at the last conversation. They need to elevate the gospel over romance. The love addict needs to see Jesus Christ in others more than their physical attractiveness. They need to share salvation in Jesus and let that drive away the dominating thought of emotional crushes or lust. The ultimate love addict seeks romance with people regardless of whether they're in Christ or not. Romance has become more important, even, even than maintaining their purity in Christ. Romance has become such a driving force for the ultimate love addict that their future maturity in the Lord is something to be put at risk. So that they can gain the emotional closeness with this particular person. I think that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, only marry in the Lord. Why? Because the gospel is more important than romance. If you see a gospel addict within, repent. And when you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ, look for Jesus in them first. Okay, character number two. Character number two second person who elevates romance over the gospel is the love Pharisee. The love Pharisee. If a love addict is dominated by the desire for love, the love Pharisee is dominated by the fear of love. Love Pharisee, dominated by the fear of romance. Now, everybody knows... Most people here probably know who the Pharisees were. Pharisees were that, that religious sect in the first century that Jesus was always rebuking all the time. So, you know, Jesus is traveling through the Middle East and preaching and teaching, and he'd come across these people called the Pharisees, and he would rebuke them on a regular basis because they were very impressed with their own righteousness, and they looked on other people with contempt. They, they were impressed with themselves and looked on other people with With contempt. Pharisees are people that turn a legitimate desire for purity into a passion to be better than the people around them. They turn a legitimate desire for purity into a passion to be better than the people around them. They turn godliness into a self-monument. They turn an appropriate caution into an opportunity for legalism. Pharisees are so concerned about not being a love addict that they elevate romance above the gospel. For them, not being romantic dominates their relationships with others. If the love addict is the child in the cereal aisle ripping up the cereal to steal the toys, love Pharisee doesn't go to the cereal aisle doesn't go to the grocery store, doesn't eat cereal. <laughs> he stays away from people altogether, especially those that might possibly, uh, you know, maybe there might be some interest he can detect somewhat in his soul, especially those people. And so he only hangs out with those of the same gender or maybe those of the opposite gender that he can't imagine ever, possibly ever being ever interested in, ever. How encouraging for them. It's a love Pharisee, right? It's a love Pharisee runs in the opposite direction. Out of godliness, no, out of a desire to exalt his own reputation, out of a desire to see in himself in himself his own salvation. The love Pharisee stands there and says, "I am pure. I am righteous." I would never do what I know they're doing over there. That guy and girl talking. Impossible for that to be anything other than an unrighteous conversation. Did you see that? I think she just dropped her Bible. He was handing it to her. Yes, but what was his motive? The love Pharisee has a prayer. I thank God I'm not like a love addict. I rarely ever talk with the opposite gender. I'm not like the others that are talking, those flirtatious fools. I congratulate my record of distance from the opposite gender. And if I'm a guy, I'm more interested in keeping my reputation than cultivating servant leadership among the girls that I know. If I'm a girl, I'm more interested in keeping my reputation than in benefiting from godly fellowship with single Christian guys. If I'm a guy, girls make me so nervous that the best thing I can do is never talk to them. If I'm a girl, guys make me so nervous, the best thing I can do is never talk to them. The possibility of romance for the love Pharisee says run. But... In Christ, there is neither male nor female. If that is true, there is neither male nor female. How can it be that another Christian brother or sister in Christ is cut off from all fellowship with us? The gospel should enable us to have pure, accountable, righteous, upbuilding relationships between single Christian brother, single Christian sister. If in Christ there is neither male nor female. And obviously this isn't the only verse where Paul says that in Philippians Paul wants the whole church to be one in the Lord. He appeals that the people of God have no divisions amongst them. He appeals that one not look down on another. He appeals that the stronger brother help the weaker brother. He appeals that there be unity. He appeals in Ephesians that our words give nourishment to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If those things are all subjected to the fear of romance, then subtly... Romance has been elevated above the gospel. What we become about, that matter of first importance to us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is no longer that Christ died for our sins. It has become a particular manner of approaching a person of the opposite gender. I know all about love Pharisees because I was a love Pharisee. Actually, I haven't met anybody that was a better love Pharisee than I was. <laughs> Trust me, I will compare your stories to mine, and I will win. <laughs> Quick to assume that any conversation between a guy or a girl must be packed with ungodly intentions. Unwilling to engage in an appropriate conversation with a Christian girl about our shared faith in Christ, because I judged her as unwilling to interpret that conversation appropriately. As though my silence and distance was a sign of godliness. Eventually, I was not concerned about serving nearly as much as I was my own reputation. There was no possibility that anyone could accuse me of expressing interest in a girl because I would never talk to one. Or if I did, the conversation would be so super spiritual and unnatural, it would be obvious I wasn't interested in her. Now this is harder. It's easier to idolize safety than to walk a line in dependence on the Spirit before the Lord with accountability that elevates the gospel above romance and has an allowance for appropriate relationship between single Christian guy, single Christian girl that is holy, that is pure, that is based in the gospel, but that actually takes place. That's a lot harder. It's easier to have a certain number of rules that we put into place. It's easier to do that. And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't have a lot of rules about how guys and girls relate together. Even in the topic of romance, they're just not in there. And if we want to promote our understanding of God's word and apply that to the topic of romance... We have to begin here. The gospel is more important than romance. And there just simply isn't somewhere in the Bible that says a certain number of minutes between a guy and a girl is appropriate and more minutes is wrong. There's also nowhere in the Bible that says it doesn't matter how I relate to this person if I like them. The love addict is wrong. He's absorbed the thinking of this culture that being in love is better than anything else. He's wrong. The love Pharisee is wrong. He's exalted the idea that having a reputation for godliness is godliness. He's wrong. Both have elevated romance above the gospel and both need to apply that in Christ there is neither male nor female godly, pure, accountable relationship between single guys and single girls that are not married is possible if we allow ourselves to meditate on what it means For us to be one in Christ. To be in Christ means we've been filled with the Spirit of God. It means the power of sin is broken. It means the worst thing that could ever be said about us has already been said since Jesus died for our sins. To be in Christ means that love is a blessing and not a curse. Not to be pursued selfishly, nor to be feared, nor to be given the prominence over gospel fellowship. The gospel invites guys and girls who are saved to fellowship around the fact that their sins are forgiven. It frees love addicts from seeing in others just a selfish opportunity. It frees love Pharisees from maintaining our distance from those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is not saying there's no such thing as men or women. Praise God. I am not saying that crushes are unnatural or bad. Or that romance and purity is stupid or caution is boring. I am saying that we evaluate those things first and best when we say that we are one in Christ and we, should, we can fellowship together around the gospel. Wisdom will come as we put romance in its place. The gospel is more important than romance. If you are a love addict, or you are a love Pharisee, repent. Appeal for help. Ask those that know you, your parents, your friends, which one you are, and how that plays out in your life. Invite their observations, and begin to apply That being one in Christ should be the dominating category as you relate to your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for making us one in Christ. Thank you for uniting us in the gospel. And Lord, we are grateful, Lord, that you have made men and women. And we ask that you would continue to speak to us through your word about the supreme value of your gospel in our relationships together. Lord, may gospel fellowship abound between single guys and single girls. Lord, make us holy enough for pure gospel relationships. Lord, only you can do that. We pray that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen.